Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Well, if someone asked you what the Christian life was all about, just like sum it up, just like put the cookies on the bottom shelf for me. What is the Christian life all about? What would you say? Or if Better yet, we asked the person on the street, if there is still maybe a person on the street, I'm not sure. We ran into a person on the street and, and asked them, what is the Christian life all about? What do you think they'd say? As our culture is extremely polemic, right, usually, usually gravitate towards one side or the other, you'd probably have people heading towards one answer or the other. And maybe two sides might be most popular. Maybe you'd find people saying, well, Christianity is all about love. It's just all you have to do is love each other. And then maybe you'll have another side that will head towards the other side, and they'll say, well, Christianity is all about obedience. You've got to follow all those rules that are in the Bible. It's all about obedience. Is that right? Are we just exclusively called to love? Are we exclusively called to obedience? Or is it both? And are they related? And How? And hopefully we're going to find out the answers to those questions today in our very familiar passage in uh, Matthew chapter 22. Uh, my apologies to Piero because when I updated the message in our Slack, uh, I didn't tell them that I was taking more than the original couple, three verses there. So there, there's more. We're going from 34 to 46 today. So apologize for that miscommunication there. If you're visiting with us, what we do here is we go through books of the Bible and we preach verse by verse, and we go chapter by chapter, we go book by book, and we've been in Matthew for a while, and, and the idea there is we preach expositionally, meaning that we expose the meaning of the text. And so hopefully, the main point of my sermon is the main point of this passage. And everybody's going to laugh at me because I use the same joke all the time. I'm not going to stand up here and tell you five ways of how to have a better Monday, although maybe something in the passage will tell you how to have five ways to have a better Monday. Right? I don't preach my ideas. Let's just get that out into the open right now. I don't have an original thought. I, amen. Right? I, this, is, this is my source material here. And so hopefully what I say is not, is not new. Last week we looked at Jesus' second encounter with his opponents, the Sadducees. Their attempt at making the doctrine of the resurrection out to be ridiculous. How did Jesus respond and how are we to respond against such attacks? We said we're to respond by pushing back against unscriptural views by clarifying the actual truth of Scripture. We need to keep in mind, however, that those views, that Christian doctrines and things will sound impossible to those who are not yet Christians. The Holy Spirit has to do that work to open eyes and minds and hearts to understand this week, we're going to see two major events. First, Jesus tangles with a very familiar group, the Pharisees. They take their turn at trying to trap him. But then second, we're going to see Jesus has had enough of these questions. Remember, this is going to be our third group now that is going to try to trap him. And now Jesus has had enough. And now it's in time for Jesus to turn the tables and try and trap them. Let's look again at Matthew 22 starting at verse 34. It's just that first chunk. He says, But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, dun, 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 a lawyer, asked him a question. Sorry, Glenn. To test him and Paula. And Paula. Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? 
And there you have it. The third group. We had the Herodians. They came. They wanted to talk about their favorite subject, taxes. And then we had the Sadducees. They wanted to talk about their favorite subject, the resurrection. And now you have the Pharisees, and they want to talk about their favorite subject, the law. And when we talk about the law, we don't mean the Roman law, speed limits and stuff like that. We talk about the law of God. The Pharisees are the experts in the law of God. They have the law of God memorized. They've studied it from the time that they were in kingdom kids, right? They see that Jesus has now silenced the Sadducees, so they have a quick huddle, and they come up with a plan, and they want to pick somebody to go ask him. You go ask him. No, you too. No. Did you see what he did to the Herodians and the Sadducees? I'm not talking to that guy. You go. So they pick somebody. Maybe they drew the short straw. They went and they asked Jesus a question. Say, uh, say there, Mr. Great uh, Teacher Guy, sir, question. Um, of all of the commands of, you know, the law of God, which one is the most important? Which one is the greatest? They're hoping to trap him, right? Because we think of the law of God maybe as the Ten Commandments summarized in the Decalogue, right? But for a Pharisee, we have over 600 commands in the law of God that they've added to the law of God in the Mishnah. So you have something like uh, honor the Sabbath and keep it holy, right? It means you generally do not work, you know, set aside a day for rest and worship and stuff. So then they put all these other commands around that, Say, like, well, don't carry your mat, don't start a fire, don't do anything, don't press any buttons on the elevator. You know, that's why you have Sabbath elevators, all of that stuff, right? That they put around that. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of commands. And they say, which one of those is the most important? They're hoping that he picks one and then they could pounce on him and say, that's wrong, right? Now, and a few things are wrong about this right off the bat. First, the question in and of itself is showing a weakness in their own position. The question in and of itself is inconsistent with their own position because Jesus really could have said, um, well, all of them. <laughs> like, that's your gig, isn't it, guys? That's your thing. You hold people to these hundreds of commands. There's not really one that's more important than the other, is there? So it's showing the inconsistency of their position. And they talked about this. Commentators said, you know, when uh, the Pharisees uh, would hang out with the scribes and maybe go to Starbucks or something, they would talk about which one of these commandments is the most important one. That's what they would do. That's what they would take up their time. These obsessions with the ins and outs of the law. But the second thing this question reveals is that it, it shows their perspective on the law itself. The Pharisees are hopelessly legalistic. Legalism means that to be godly, you need to check the boxes. You just need to do these things. Just obey these things. Says this, do it. If I want you to do this just because I'm a Pharisee and I tell you you should do this, do it. That's what legalism is. And not only in God's law, of course, but again, the hundreds of other laws that they themselves made up. And so you have God's law, and then you have the Pharisees, and they're holding people to this ridiculously high standard to say, yes, in order to be holy like us, in order for God to be happy with you, you have to obey all of these laws. That's legalism. There's no hard engagement. Just toe the line. Just do what you're supposed to do. 
It's another perversion of what God has entrusted to them in his law. His law was designed by him to reveal his character and have people follow him joyfully out of a heart of love and faithfulness and worship. But the Pharisees empty that and they just say, no, it's just about this. Just do this. God doesn't want that. Let's be clear. God doesn't want empty obedience. Worse yet, church, I hope you're already realizing this, but there's no possible way that anyone can be saved by obeying the law. Number one, we can't keep the law. We're hopelessly already sinners separated from God. That should be apparent. There's no salvation whatsoever in mere obedience. And so here's the point. Legalism is loveless obedience. Legalism is loveless obedience. God has already spoken through the prophets in judgment of Israel for their loveless obedience of him. If we go way back to the prophet Amos in chapter 5, looking at verses 21, this is what God says about their legalism. He says, I hate and I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look at them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. How about that? Worship team's working really hard to do songs. God's like, this is noise. I don't want it. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Many of you are thinking of Martin Luther King there, of course. But you see what, what God himself has said. I, I don't want it because I know your hearts. You're idolatrous. You're adulterous. You have rejected me. You are worshiping other gods. Keep it. Keep your church service. Keep your sacrifices. Keep your music. Keep your Bible studies. I don't want it. I don't want loveless obedience. Just don't bother. If your heart's not in it, don't bother. Elsewhere, in Israel, or he tells Israel, rather, in Psalm 51, 17, that the sacrifices he does desire are this, a broken and contrite heart. Don't just check the boxes. I want your heart. Even if, so if you're not doing it out of love, I don't want your animal sacrifices. And again, the worst part of legalism, it can't save. There's no amount of good deeds that we can ever do that will cancel out the least of our sins. We come into this world sinful and separated from God. Our hearts with total depravity, right? The idea that we're not as bad as we can be, but every part of us is completely cursed by sin. There's nothing that we can do. What can, what can we do with our dirty, sinful hands to bring to the holiest of holy something that would please him? We can't. It's impossible. What can save? Only true faith in the one who obeyed the law of God perfectly for us, Jesus Christ. See, church, the law was never designed to save. Sometimes we look at the Old Testament, we see all those things, and we're just like, ugh, like I <clears throat> talked to somebody today, they're like, I'm reading Leviticus in my quiet time, it hurts my head. And numbers, it's just like, ugh, numbers. The law was never designed to save. It's not like something went wrong. The law was designed for a few things. It shows us the character of God. It sets Israel apart from the other nations. But ultimately, it shows us that it can't save. 
Ultimately, it shows us, as Hebrews tells us, that it's a shadow of the things to come. It can't possibly save. It points to the futility of trying to be saved by obedience because we can't do it. So there has to be someone who can in Jesus Christ. Not of our own obedience. As you may ex expect, the New Testament is all over this truth. We are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 tells us that we've been saved by grace through faith. This is not our own doing. It's the gift of God. It's not a result of works that nobody can boast. 2 Timothy 1, 9 tells us that God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus. I'll give you one more. Titus 3, 5 tells us he saved us. Very important to see the way the Bible talks about salvation, right? God did the saving. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing and regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly in Christ Jesus, our Savior. Do you realize, do we realize that that makes biblical Christianity completely different than any other religion on the planet Earth? Do we get that? Every other religion, every other religion, including selfism, right? Self-esteem, we're going to talk about that too, right? Every other religion says, do this, don't do this, eat this, certainly don't eat that, wear this, make a pilgrimage here or there, or do something, and maybe, just maybe, the God who you're trying to worship will be happy enough to let you in and forgive you. That's what every other religion on the planet says, including Roman Catholicism. Biblical Christianity, the Bible, this is when people like Martin Luther, it blew their mind because they're like, this stuff's not in the Bible. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says there's nothing you can do. God did it. In Jesus Christ. You believe in him, you repent, you believe in him, then you are saved from his wrath. Then you have that, that righteousness imputed to you, credited to you. Luther calls it an alien righteousness that comes, not like an alien, the green guy, but an alien outside us, right? That comes into us. So it's worth pausing and asking a few application questions. Why are you here this morning? If you're a Christian, Hopefully you're here to worship God because you love him. Why do you obey him if you're a Christian? Hopefully, again, because you love him, because you want to, not loveless obedience. And maybe the most important question, what are you trusting to be seen as righteous before a holy, sinless God? It has to be faith in Jesus Christ. That's the only thing what the Word of God has told us. So if legalism is loveless obedience, what is the opposite? What does God want from us more than anything else? And Jesus goes on to tell us. So they, they, they ask him the question, they throw it down, which is the most important commandment in the law? Look at verse 37, and he said to them simply, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. Can you imagine this moment? 
Like by now, there's definitely a crowd because last week we saw this was all the same day. This was probably the same day too. All these different groups are now taking their shots at Jesus, right? There's probably a crowd gathering, right? Because all the big muckety mucks and the PhDs are trying their turn at trying to trip up Jesus. And the Pharisees, they shoot their shot. They, they throw their question out there. Can you imagine the silence of that moment as they just wait to see what Jesus will say? And Jesus replies simply, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Mic drop. Boom. They wanted him to pick a single commandment out of the hundreds that exist, but he masterfully goes back to what God himself told Moses in Deuteronomy we read it for Old Testament reading, but, but we read it again in context in Deuteronomy 6. The Shema, Shema Israel, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command to you shall be on your heart. If you're looking at this in Deuteronomy in your Bible, and if you look to the left, you have just seen that God has given the Ten Commandments. He's just given the law. And now he says, this is the most important part of the law. Don't do anything that's on the left side of the page unless you're doing it in love, in supreme love for me. Deuteronomy differs by using the word might or strength that's why in uh, Mark's account, he adds that, and he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Matthew isn't making a mistake here. He's, just, he's referencing most likely a different translation of the Old Testament. He says, here, here's the point. It doesn't matter in that sense, because what's the point? The takeaway is love God with everything you have. That's, that's Hebrew speak, mind, heart, soul, strength, Hebrew speak, for everything that is in you and everything that you have and everything that is about you, everything you own. Love the Lord your God like that. Do we seek to love God like this? Every part of our lives, our marriages, our parenting, our jobs, our schools, our money, our leisure time, our iPhones, do we not only have an awareness of this command, but do we have a desire to do this? To obey God, to love him in every area of our lives. This is the greatest commandment, and Jesus makes a huge point. It's not about loveless obedience, like in legalism, but it's about loving God from your heart that is full of love for him. If we love him, we will obey him. But it has to start with love. And if we love God, we will obey in how we are supposed to then love and treat others. That's where he goes next. Look at verse 38. They ask for one commandment, the greatest commandment. He gives them a bonus. He gives them the greatest commandment and the second greatest commandment. He says, and this is, uh, the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the law and the prophets. This two is not something Jesus made up. He didn't make it up on the spot. It comes from Leviticus in chapter 19, verse 18. If we read that in context very, very briefly so you know that I'm not making it up. 
says, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. What does it mean to love each other as much as we love ourselves? In fact, Jesus quoted this already in chapter 19 when he was dealing with the rich young ruler, right? The guy came up to him and says, what do I need to do to be saved? What do I need to do to be in the kingdom? And Jesus says, you know the commandments, obey them all. And he's like, I've done them all. Really? You've loved your neighbor as yourself. If we think about that, what does that actually mean? I'm not sure if you know this or not, but loving others is difficult because we're human and we're sinners. Marriage can be hard. Parenting can be hard. Friendships can be hard. Relationships in the church can be difficult. Why? Sin. We're sinners. So herein lies that absolute beauty of Jesus' response. These two statements, he said, are related, and in fact, they correspond to each other. In fact, he makes the huge statement that then all the law and all the prophets depend on these two commandments, he said. That means the entire Old Testament, all the, the three quarters of our Bible, right? You want to know what the Old Testament says? He says, sum it up like this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's the entire Old Testament. All of that, all of those commands, they all hang on that. They're all dependent on that. Because you can't love others the way that God calls us to without loving God the way that God calls us to. And so that's the point. To love others well, we must love God first. To love others well, we must love God first. This is actually the vision statement of Highlands Bible Church. Piero already pointed that to us. It's in our bulletins every week. We love God and we love people. That's our vision that will never change. And we know that you can't do one without the other. Our vision is not just love God, nor is our vision just love people. But we do both of, or seek to do both of those things, and they're related we know that we can't do our mission, which is to bring glory to God by making and maturing disciples of Jesus Christ. We can't do that unless what? We're submitting to God out of love. So why? It lies in those little words that Jesus said in quoting the law, love others as much as you love yourself. And some of us are just like, well, hey, I don't, I don't really love myself, you know, that much. Really? I think we do it without, I think we're really, really good at loving ourselves, aren't we? When we're hungry, we get something to eat, don't we? When we're tired, we get something, we go to sleep. When we want to be left alone because we're done with everybody in the world, what do we do? We go away to our man cave or something and we shut the door. We, take, we seek comfort, we seek refuge. We don't have to be told how to care for ourselves. We just do it. We love ourselves. The straight truth is we actually love ourselves a lot. When we want to buy something on Amazon, we just fire up the phone in the Amazon app and we get it and it shows up at our house. And we hope our spouse doesn't see it and we quickly bring it inside before. <laughs> now, here, don't hear this. Jesus is not saying that we should not love ourselves, right? But the truth is we have no problem loving ourselves. We really don't. Even when we, watch this, even when we're wallowing in our own misery about how much we hate ourselves, who are we focused on? Ourselves. 
Tricky how pride works, isn't it? Deceitful in that. When we have this woe is me attitude and it surrounds me and I'm nothing and I'm nobody and nobody loves me and all of that stuff with it's me, 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 me. We're still talking about ourselves. Jesus is not saying that we should not love ourselves. And I also want to point out that this is completely different than the modern humanistic culture of the self-esteem movement, right? And the self-love and the self-care. Again, what do all those things start with? Self. Guys, as believers, we have to see ourselves in the identity of Jesus Christ. If we do not see each other, if we do not see ourselves in the identity of Jesus Christ, we're not seeing ourselves accurately. And so if we think that we are unloved, if we think that we are unworthy, if we think that we are, are, are lowly or unwanted or unloved, we have to go to what Jesus says about us. We can't go to the world for that. We have to go to what Jesus says for that because the truth is Jesus does love us. That gives us that identity. And therefore, because of that, then, we love Jesus and we love others. Furthermore, we cannot love others knowing that, uh, without knowing that God loves us first. 1 John chapter 4 might be ringing in some of your ears. 1 John chapter 4, starting at verse 19. It says, we love, why? Because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God who he's not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. For the Christian, love is not an option. It's just not. It's a command. And we can't do it without loving God first with all that we have. To love others well, we must love God first. Again, where is this ground zero? In the home. Marriages, parenting, sibling relationships, close relationships, this truth gets played out every day, all day in the home. In the book that we use for premarital counseling, it lays out this principle very clearly. The first two chapters are laid out very intentionally. The first chapter says, Jesus must be the center of your life, which kind of is like, I thought we we're talking about marriage here. Well, yes, but before you can have a good marriage, Jesus needs to be the center of you. So the first chapter is Jesus must be the center of your own individual life, and then the second chapter is Jesus must be the center of your marriage. Jesus can't be the center of your marriage if he's not the center of your individual lives. That's what this passage is telling us. In order for us to love our spouses and our children and our neighbors the way that God calls us to, it only comes from loving God the way that he commands us to with everything that we have. So where's the tension in your relationships? Where's the tension in your marriage, in your parenting? Where do you need to submit to God out of love for him, right? Because there's always enough sin to go around, right, in relationships and conflicts. We know that. One author said that every relationship failure and contact has something to do with us falling short of loving God the way that he calls us to. And there are some very difficult relationships and very difficult situations. We can't love each other well without the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to do that. It's impossible. 
We can't love our spouses well <clears throat> without that empowerment. To love others well, we must love God first. But what does that actually mean? Love God with all we have, what does that mean? Why would we do that? How do we do that? To answer that question, Jesus turns the tables on his opponents and once again blows their minds with a powerful application of Old Testament prophecy. Look at this last chunk in 41. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. And he said to them, well, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. <laughs> Notice what Jesus does here. He, he capitalizes on the momentum right? So they've just had all their huddles, all their groups are trying their questions, right? And, and Jesus still sees them while they're still gathered together. He's like, this conversation isn't over. He says, I'm going to ask you a question. Jesus says, hey, hey guys, uh, if you're done, I got a question for you. And Jesus picks his favorite topic, the Messiah, the plan of God to redeem redeem the world for his glory. So I'm curious, um, what's, what's the current thinking on the Messiah? Whose son is he? Just now, now, remember, these guys are like the nerds, the, the, the PhDs, the experts. One commentator said this is like asking somebody with a, a PhD in astrophysics something from a third grade science class, you know? I would, I would imagine rather immediately they answered, um, David's son, duh, as they're ribbing each other, like, that's, that's your big question. Everybody knows that. It's covered in day one of Pharisee school. <laughs> the Messiah is going to be the son of David. And Jesus, again, goes to God's word, and he's like, oh, all right, follow-up question then. If he's his son... Why does he call him Lord? And he goes to Psalm 110, which is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. And he says, one, one verse he's building from. Psalm 110, verse 1, simply says, this is a psalm of David, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Okay, so... Second part of that verse, right? Sit at my right hand. So we see at the right hand of the throne of God, right? Till I make your enemies your footstool, meaning until, until your enemies are defeated and I can rest my feet on their bodies, right? So your enemies are done, right? You have the authority and the victory. So we can see here in this that hopefully the first Lord is all capitals. And when you're in the Old Testament and you see L-O-R-D in all capitals, that means that's the covenant name of God. That is Yahweh. That is Jehovah. That is the name for God the Father. It's in all caps. That's what that means. But God the Father is then, if you will, having a conversation with someone else who's identified as Lord. But this is not in all caps. It's regular. It's capital L and then lowercase o-r-d. That's not Yahweh. That's Adonai. That means another Lord. 
And so in a sense, if you follow this, the second Lord is identified by David as who? His Lord. That second Lord, David says, is, is my Lord. This is talking about the Messiah. If we go on in this passage, right, it's talking about that the, this Lord, this Messiah, will have the place of authority and glory and prominence. We already know he's going to defeat his enemies because he's going to use their heads for footstools. Right? The psalm goes on to tell us that the Lord Adonai will be a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. He will execute judgment on the nations. This psalm is indisputably pointing to the Messiah. It is one of the most messianic psalms that there is in all of the book of Psalms. And so in a sense, what this is saying is God the Father says to the Messiah, sit at my right hand. But then David is quoting this. So David says, the Messiah is my Lord. Jesus says, so the question remains, if he's just David's son, why does David call him his Lord? Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. The Pharisees don't want a divine Lord Messiah. They want a human being Messiah. That's why they go from the son of David. That's why they stick to that family line. They want that, that king, that warrior king, who's going to roll in on a war horse, tatted up, ready for battle with this huge sword. He's going to lead Israel to kick Rome out of their land and restore Israel's greatness. That's what they want. And Jesus says that's not what the Messiah is. Time and time again, he comes in conflict with what they want. He says, it's not just merely a man. He is going to be the Messiah. He's going to be the Son of God. Jesus has been claiming all along that that's who? Him. He's the Messiah. So he's not David's son. He's David's Lord. And if he's a Lord, that requires submission. So I'll say this, Jesus is to be submitted to as Lord. Jesus is to be submitted to as Lord. Again, that's not what the Pharisees want to hear. He's masterful in his reply. That's why in verse 46, everybody else knows that. That's why they're like, okay, question time's done. We're not going to ask him any more questions. The crazy thing, again, is that there's no doubt people who were there, who heard this, who heard Jesus say these things, who still walked away and said, yeah, I'm not really convinced. I don't think he's the Messiah. It blows my mind. But he could not have been more clear. The Messiah, God in the flesh. We even see a little bit of the interplay here of the Trinity, the Father talking to the Son, right? The authority that's there. But the point remains, if Jesus is Lord, if Jesus is not just a man, if Jesus is not just the son of David, he is the Lord that David submits to, how much more then do we have to submit to him as Lord? We don't have many lords these days, so it's a little bit weird for us to think about that, right? We have land lords, right? I guess you could say that. We have people of authority over us, but even then, authority is not a popular concept these days. People don't like the concept of authority. People don't like the concept of submission, but it's, that's what a Lord is. It's someone who is actually in authority over you, and you need to submit to them because they are your authority over them. People don't like authority these days. As soon as a, a cop pulls somebody over, right, right away, you got this going on. I got my rights. I don't have to do this. Whatever else. People not submitting. It's worth af asking ourselves this morning, then, who, who is Jesus to you. 
Is Jesus actually your Lord that you submit to? Or is he a man? Is he a prophet? Is he an example? Is he someone to emulate? Or is he Lord of your life? Are you looking for the Messiah the way the Pharisees did? The Pharisees just want the Messiah to do something for them. Yesterday we had a, a time of memorial remembering uh, Dawn's mom and the, talking about the, the thief on the cross, right? That first thief. He just wanted, he's like, Messiah guy, get us out of this. I'm not going to submit to you as Lord, but what I want you to do is fix this situation right now. So if you are the Messiah, get us out of this. Church, we can slip into that really easily, can't we? God, just fix this. Just get me out of this, right? It's much different posture than submitting to him as Lord and saying, not my will, but your will be done. Where the rubber meets the road here is how we live our lives. Do we live our lives in submission to Jesus as Lord, meaning do we obey him? Who wins in those hundreds of little moments every single day of our lives when we have that clash of kingdom? I know that Jesus, as Lord of my life, calls me to do this, but I'm going to do this. I know I need to be kind and patient, but my kids, I just don't have it anymore, so here it comes. They're on my last nerve. I know Jesus, as Lord of my life, says that sex is only for marriage, but I say otherwise, so sorry, Lord, I win, not you. I know in this season that God has given me right now, it's really hard, and I'm, I'm questioning the Lord's sovereignty and goodness. It's fine to have those moments, but do we bring ourselves back to him as Lord of our lives? What he says in his word as sin, do we then declare it as sin, and do we seek to live lives of here, holiness? That's where it comes to. This is where legalism comes in again. Oh, holiness, okay, cool, you got a list, let's do it. Wrong. That's not what we're talking about here. Is it come from a heart of love and submission to Jesus as Lord, not loveless obedience? So hopefully, let me tie this all together in the big idea. We are called to obey Jesus in love by submitting to him as Lord. We're called to obey Jesus in love by submitting to him at as Lord. This is where everything ties together. Both are necessary. It's not just obedience. Jesus isn't looking for loveless obedience. He doesn't call us for that. Neither is it all love in the sense of warm, fuzzy feelings, maybe a little pocket Jesus. We just keep him close to, to boost our self-esteem when we need it, just bring him out every once in a while. The sum of the Christian life is not just love each other. It's a popular expression in 2022 America, isn't it? Just love each other. But then loving each other then becomes defined as endorsing any behavior that anyone seems to want to force on you. And if you disagree with those, then you're not loving them. That's not true. It can't work because it's just not us loving each other well. It means we have to love God first with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And God has standards. Part of loving him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength is actually doing what he tells us to do, living the way he calls us to live. But Jesus' point is that the Christian's life is both love and obedience, and they're both necessary. And we're called to obey Jesus in love by submitting to him as Lord. And church, it's so easy to get out of balance in this. 
especially when, again, the world slaps the label of love on anything, regardless of whether or not it's sinful or not. Do we drift along with the world? Or do we say, no, no, wait a minute. Lo yes, I'm called to love the Lord, but I'm, also, uh, but I'm also called to submit to Him as Lord. Do we maybe drift to the other side of legalism? Do we hold our friends, our family, our others, and our own legalistic standard that they have to live up to or else? It's not just all love, and it's not just all obedience. Jesus has a title. He has an office. He's not just Savior. He is Lord, and we're called to obey Jesus in love by submitting to Him as Lord. Why would we do that again? Because He is who He says He is. If you haven't done that today, I urge you to do that today. Submit to Him as Lord. Understand that you're a sinner. Turn from your sin. Place your faith in Jesus Christ. Maybe you have done that. Maybe you've been walking with Jesus for years. But maybe this is a gut check for us. Are we out of balance in one way or the other? Are we more on just the love? Or are we more on just the obedience? Or do we seek to do what Jesus has called ourselves, called us to do? To obey Jesus in love by submitting to him as Lord. Father, we thank you for... This passage, such a familiar passage, Lord, indeed one that we have based our church on in, in the sense of loving God and loving people. Lord, we, we know, and I pray that it would be so much more apparent to us today, that we can't do that. We can't love people unless we love you first. So, Lord, in all the myriad of ways that we are not loving you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, Maybe it's with our hobbies, maybe it's with our bank accounts, maybe it's our, our choices that we make, Lord, and sin and not sin. Maybe it's about sacrifices to serve you or not serve you or whatever it is. We pray that you would point those out. Holy Spirit, do the work of conviction and growth in us today that you might be glorified in your people. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, church, I'd invite you to stand as we sing.